As a longtime fan of The Spectator, I can't be alone in finding one regular contributor to the magazine increasingly unmissable. She gets away with tackling topics which some commentators shy away from. How does she do that? By an unignorable sense of logic and a lyrical flourish that characterizes the words that she uses. She is Lionel Shriver, who joins me now. Lionel Shriver, thanks so much for your time. Do appreciate it. What else am I going to do? Well, there's a good. What else would you be doing right now? <laughs> Working on my new book, so okay. another excuse. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. Um, let's talk about Twitter straight away. It's now in the hands of Elon Musk. Do you rejoice? Uh, are you neutral about it? Do you think it may not be a good thing? Um, I find it strangely satisfying. Uh, it's a victory for my side, our side, free speech. I would be ordinarily a little uncomfortable with someone with a whole lot of money swooping in and taking what has be become regarded as a, a public good, a public utility, utility um, and taking it private. Uh, but uh, all the other uh, uh, social media companies are also controlled by rich people. So why should Twitter be any different? Uh, rich people often tend to be. I mean, this sort of old idea of the, the robber baron of, of the sort of Hurstian character who will be naturally conservative. That's rubbish, isn't it? Mo most of the billionaires increasingly seem to be motivated by a desire to be quite liberal, it seems to me. Although part of corporate well, entities. Which... that's what we still call it. I think it's erroneous at this point. I won't use that word again. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to... Here's something you will like. I'm going to quote back to you something you wrote in The Spectator recently. And I liked it so much, I took a picture of it and tweeted and a couple of thousand people agreed with me. You wrote, and this is, um, this is about Ukraine. The high stakes headlines of the past week involve authentic morality, thereby exposing what's been passing for the ethics of our day as indulgent entertainment. Decolonizations, contextualizations, gender neutralizations, it's all a load of onanistic diversionary crap. And the West, having sh shoved its head up its backside, is one reason that Putin feels free to do whatever he likes. We're not scary because we've made ourselves uh, ridiculous. That, I think, encapsulates what you do so well. There is a deep logic to what you say, but a, a, a slightly iconoclastic flourish in the writing. Um, well, I have right. to keep myself amused. But it, was, but it, it just struck me as, as singly and obviously true. Yes. Yes. And and that's, that's, you, that's the key to getting a readership response, or if you will, a viewership response, yeah. is that, that people recognize it as simply true. How do you feel when, you read a, when you've written a paragraph like that? Do you know that it's going to sing a little bit? Lines like that will generally take a tiny little bit of tweaking, but that's one of my favorite aspects of writing. I mean, once you've got it laid out, just making it shine, it, it, it almost goes into sculpture. You know, that little yeah. file yeah. here. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. But um, why, why are you in the UK? Why are you, why are you fighting the culture? I ask myself <laughs> that daily. But why? I mean, you're in the trenches of the culture wars, but why are you on this side of the Atlantic, not the other? I, it was an accident. Uh, I, I came over here originally, um, here loosely, loosely speaking, because we're talking about Belfast. Um, <laughs> and that was in order to write a book. I was planning to set there and I expected to be around for about nine months and left 12 years later. <laughs> Ended up in, in London uh, also by accident because my partner got a job here and 
I don't know, I just, uh, it was entropy. I'd, I <laughs> ran out of wanderlust and <laughs> here I was. And I don't, I don't feel regretful because um, I think it's the best way to travel is to stay put. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and travel through the imagination. Yeah, I mean, I still go elsewhere, but there's no substitute for really living a place and, and um, understanding it on a, on a very deep level. And I mean, do you, do you miss I think I understand the British better than they wish to be understood. And, uh, <laughs> and what do you see that we don't see? Well, for example, not a whole lot. I mean, I get, I, I suffer from that kind of close up myopia as much as anybody, but uh, I look at something like Partygate and roll my eyes. This would not likely happen in the United States. Because or it wouldn't, most be, it wouldn't be deemed to be a scandal. It's petty. And uh, the British in general tend to be obsessed with rules and are uh, really keen on their enforcement for their own sake, not to a purpose, which is not my approach to rules at all. I obey rules for which I res have respect mm. or that if I, if I don't obey them, I'll get into trouble. <laughs> so, that's rational also. But is it not an argument for the sort of broken windows school of morality that says if, 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 if the trigger is right here, then, then it's better than here because, you, you know, we, we become alarmed at the behavior of our public servants, at minor infractions, and therefore we don't, we're not left with the bigger infractions. The result is <clears throat> spending a lot of public time some of my time watching the news <laughs> on things that don't matter. I agree. And, and there's an opportunity cost, isn't there? <clears throat> yeah. You're focusing on this and you should be focusing on this bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, the number of hours devoted to this absurd story is, is outrageous. And my, my objection is fundamentally that what's wrong is the rules. The rules were appalling. They were interfering. They did not trust the public to um, be self-protective and exercise common sense. They were inconsistent. They were epidemiologically absurd. Um, and, you know, all that business about a scotch egg and having a substantial meal with your drink and the rule of six, which sounds like something out of Harry Potter. Um, it feels like a dream now, doesn't it? Maybe a nightmare. But it's, uh, it just definitely feels a nightmare. Un unreal. And... Uh, I'm still unable to look back on it with a sense of humor, which is not like me. So that's the problem. Not that, that a few of these rules were broken, but there should never have been a rule about uh, not being able to see other people out of doors to begin with. It just simply wasn't dangerous. And that was well known early on. So it's not that I don't criticize Boris Johnson and his administration. I do. I was... Uh, I was vicious with with them at the time. Was one of the earliest ob, uh, objectors to uh, the policy of lockdown. But uh, that's where the public rage should be, and uh, I think that that people should still be angry. You know, looking back, I I was lucky. I could still do my work. My life wasn't that much impinged upon, but people who were unable to see close relatives before they died and all this nonsense and control of, of, of funerals. And I mean, there, there was a lot of personal damage done and those people should be furious.
and not because Boris Johnson had a birthday cake. I've got a, a friend who kindly drags me along to the opera occasionally. Six weeks ago, we went to the ENO. Masks were still being closely policed and a lot of them were still being worn. A fortnight ago, we went to Covent Garden. I, I don't think I saw a single mask. I say this not to show off about my cultural life. How refreshing. Life. Oh, yeah. well, it, this, I don't say it to brag about my cultural life. I say it to, to, to point to the alacrity with which this thing has been ditched. Mm. And I, 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 I thought it would happen. Uh, and, and it has happened. There's a sense of embarrassment and awkwardness. And did we really do that? And a tipping point, I don't know when it came, where suddenly the only people left wearing masks almost were viewed as, as slightly furtive. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a relief to me because we could have gone a different direction. There was a while there that many people were supposing we would wear masks, masks in perpetuity. Yeah. And that was a, a horrible vision of the future. I just thought, I cannot go there. I detest wearing them. I detest being in social circumstances where people are wearing them. And one of the things that's, that's happened in, in the UK that I'm especially uncomfortable with, and I hope this phenomenon is also starting to fade, but it's that business of you're in a restaurant or you're in a, a, a reception, a social setting, so there's a class issue here, and the help are all wearing masks yeah. and and none none of the people they're serving are wearing masks and it it's was it the baftas it's there kind was, of ultra yeah. dystopian totally totally there was um, a famous shot from the, the baftas not so very long ago where the person bringing out the cake had a mask and none of the celebs and stars had a, had a mask on. i've been to any number of literary functions where the uh people with the hors d'oeuvres are all wearing masks and everyone else is chatting and shouting and I'm embarrassed. Enough with the COVID theatre. Yeah. No, I'm not. Well, I mean, we all have to wear them or, or none of us. But don't, yeah. don't tell the staff, the lowly, you know, peon staff, that they have to cover up and become an anonymous. Because they're anonymous enough already. Yeah. Are you not struck by the fact that the news gods have a sense of humour, that we can move something from something, a crisis, if that's what it was. I don't think it was a crisis. I think it was a, a victory for common sense, like Brexit, but which certainly dug the trenches of the culture war that little bit deeper. And then seamlessly almost we move from that into a new uh, culture war battlefront, which is unignorable, even more unignorable than Brexit was before. You had to have a conversation in the checkout queue before somebody could establish which side of the fence you were on. Now it's there, it's on your face. Uh, and, and then as, uh, in addition to that, of course, we then moved into Ukraine almost on the day that lockdown stopped in England, we moved into Ukraine. So the news gods have this sort of sense of humour. But my point is about the, the, the culture wars and how Brexit felt like it had sown deep divisions uh, as deep as those we saw in the Indy Ref 2 in Scotland, but that was still political. The political then went personal with lockdown and people lost even more friends, it seems to me. The lockdown thing was a little odder. It wasn't quite along the same divisive seam as Brexit. Uh, it was horrifying in a different way because there were I, I, there was very little resistance. There was a tiny group of people who were largely vilified. I was among them, um, who were trying to say this doesn't work. This is very destructive. Um, it, it doesn't make any, any medical sense. Uh, 
the epidemic, if you will, has a mind of its own and is going to do what it's going to do. Uh, we're not in control here. We are, uh, the only thing we're in control of is the amount of damage we're doing to ourselves voluntarily. Um, if early on it was apparent that the places that locked down were not having any better results than places that didn't, um, not just, you know, the classic comparison with Sweden, but also di different states in, in the U.S. Um, if you compare them and what their policies were, there is no difference. There's no pattern. And that includes masks and lockdowns. Um, but that was not a popular viewpoint. I think that it is becoming a larger group of people. Mm. Um, and I have a special regard for those who, like someone like Toby Young, um, stuck his neck out quite early on and, and made no extra friends. You know, this was, and, and, you know, we moved seamlessly on from being divided over lockdowns to being divided over vaccines. And again, it, it had that disproportionate, it was nothing like a 50-50 divide. It was a minority who, who were vilified. I, I, I always feel it's necessary to sort of uh, qualify this question because it's a very personal question, actually. You're asking about somebody's personal bodily autonomy and their, 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 their medical choices. But I mean, were you, did, you, did you have the jab? I did. And I'm triple, yeah. I'm triple jabbed. Ditto. Okay. Yeah. Um, however, uh, I feel as if I've been conned because they, they don't last. They don't work. I got COVID a couple weeks ago. You know, and it, it's worse than not work. They are, they make you more likely to get it. And not, and, and I mean, did Mark really, Stein. Really? Yes, really? Mark Stein did a whole program mm. on this. It, 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 uh, to the, the raw statistics in the UK suggest that you are two to three times more likely to get COVID. Okay, I, I, I can't vouch for the statistics. Yes. I know you two watch these things very closely. So I'm, I do. you know. You, we'll leave it out there, but I can't. Look, I I'm can't not test. officially coming out as an anti-vaxxer, <laughs> but uh, the they're not nearly what we were sold them to be, and I I resent it. I I put something in my body, and I was told it was going to keep me from getting COVID, and I, it would keep me out of the hospital, and it would keep me from but dying. Maybe, but maybe they didn't did, even did, emphasize did, that at the very did, beginning. Were you, were you it was just a vaccine. But Lina, were you, were you hospitalized a fortnight no, ago? No. Well, maybe you would have no. been had you not been triple jabbed. Well, the statistics are not holding up on that front either. But the, but the ball but truth I mean, is what, you weren't One of the things that upsets me even more than the fact that the vaccines don't last and, and therefore we were missold them uh, is the fact that the failings of the vaccine are not getting any publicity. I mean, this conversation is making you a little nervous. No, it's not. I'm thinking about a story we're doing tonight about hepatitis in children. Yes. So we are tackling it. We are tackling some bits. Well, little it. by little. And, you know, there are a lot more um, adverse reactions, serious adverse reactions to the vaccines than we're ever told. And that all I want is for the facts to be disseminated, mm, for us mm. to have an open discussion, which could try to depoliticize the whole thing, because well, it's not a, a political question. Isn't that, isn't that what a public inquiry is going to be for? I don't trust that that is what the public inquiry is going to do. And, and, and nor do I trust that the public inquiry is going to look critically at 
lockdowns in general and what what the government rules were, I am worried that the initial approach will just be, oh, did we do it early enough mm. and hard mm. enough? Uh, maybe uh, looking at the party gate kind of thing. Yeah. And, and if you look well, at some of the terms of reference, actually, of the public, public inquiry, it's not included or doesn't seem to emphasise some of those hidden costs, particularly things like children's education, uh, oncology waiting lists, etc. It's much more about the epidemiology. Did the science work? Did we have enough protective equipment, etc., etc., etc.? That initial response. Let, well, one of the other things that, that should be looked at closely yeah. is, you know, if and when this happens again, which it, of course could, how do you keep the, the National Health Service functioning and, yeah. and serving other people who have other problems? Because this is a catastrophe. You rightly identify my nervousness around the topic. That's partly because I don't know as much as I could mm -hmm. do about the subject. It's also because I'm nervous about this interview not ending up on YouTube because there is a determination to squash alternative Yeah, Elon Musk have, hasn't so. bought YouTube yet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he will in yeah. God's good time. Um, can we talk about demography? One, uh, at least one of your columns really... Say, one of my favourite subjects. Well, and one of mine too. I wrote a book for Civitas about it 10 years ago in the context of I'm a father of six and uh, I'm a believer in the uh, shaping effects of siblings in particular. And I think that we have a conversation around demography insofar as we have it at all, and we don't, by the way. And it tends to be about, it tends to be through the prism of sort of blood and soil nationalism, you know, Hungarian pronatalism, or sometimes it's even in the context of what it does for parents. And the bit of the jigsaw that's missing, it seems to me, is what actually children do for children. Mm. And we're living in a country, and the UK is by no means alone, where the dominant family unit increasingly is the only child. We all know why that's happening, the cost of childcare, lost career momentum, et cetera, et cetera, people leaving it too late. And but it's personally a tragedy. I agree. And, you know, this is just my opinion and it's not making well, yes, well, it, not, not judging, as we say, um, parents who don't feel that they can afford either emotionally or professionally or economically to have more than one child. I'm sympathetic. But I'm simply speaking as a sister. And growing up between two brothers was incredibly rich, sometimes exasperating. Mm. Um, my older brother was categorized as having a genius level IQ. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my younger brother is still one of my best friends. And uh, there's no one else on earth who knows what it was like to grow up in our weird family, and everyone's family is and nobody's weird. closer to you in genetic makeup than your That's brother, right. not even your parents, That's actually. That's right. It, exactly. And it's a wonderful relationship. It's, it's, it's one of the richest on earth. It certainly rivals the romantic relationship. And, and so less examined, Lionel. Yes. So less examined than the romantic relationship. And the data on this is just, by and large, not there. So, for instance, we're moving from a situation. I mean, you, some people think that birth order theory is a bit kooky. I think there's some there's some truth to it. You know, if you look look at the number of, you know, I think every astronaut that's ever landed on the moon is a, is an eldest child or a, or an only child, but first born, and they tend to exhibit certain characteristics different, say, from middle children. And is it not of interest to, to, to society and indeed even things like to commerce that we're producing a world now with fewer by, of, of necessity well, middle children, you. creative middle children? Well, the weird thing about an only child is that the only child is the oldest and the youngest at the same time. So 
I don't know what that means in terms of birth order theory. Uh, they are one and the same thing, but what they exclude is any sibship. There, there, there can be no middle child. There can be no final youngest child. And, you know, I mean, some of it can feel like cod science, but I was talking to somebody about um, who's the Jonathan Ross, well-known entertainer in the UK, youngest of six. Yeah, maybe he's got a silver tongue and he's very funny and entertaining because he's Jonathan Ross. Maybe it's because he was the youngest of six. Mm. You can see how that would, if you're constantly looking up, being bullied, by older siblings, sometimes being bullied, sometimes just being told what to do. You learn to deflect some of their antagonism or hostility or oppressive love, whatever it is, by being funny and talking you out, way, 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 talking you out of a situation. My point is there's just a dearth of study about, about that subject, and I think it's really important. Um, and it's not to denigrate only kids or the parents of mm -hmm. only children. It's to try and open up a conversation that we're not being had. Let me try and do a segue then with this. I wonder sometimes whether you get to tackle those subjects which I mentioned in my introduction, which I'm not sure everybody wants to tackle. Demography being a really good example. Because you won the Orange Prize in 2005 for a memorable piece of literature that was turned into a film. Does that give you, do you think, a little bit of a, of a force field around you uh, you're not just another, sh you know, shock jock right winger. You're a woman of letters. Do, do, is there any truth in that? Um, Please say yes. <laughs> I think it's worn off. <laughs> <laughs> I think the perfect protection is worn off. I mean, uh, and I accept that. I am a novelist. Uh, that is a slightly different profession. It requires slightly different skills. So there's an intersection. But I have entered the world of commentary. I have a column, and and therefore I expect to be judged as a columnist. I mean that's yeah. that's only fair. And to, to claim, oh, I'm I'm in some special category because I'm an artist, uh, that just strikes me as cheating. Do, do, the other side of the argument sometimes seems to lack a sense of humor. When you appeared uh, wearing a sombrero to make a point about uh, cultural appropriation. Not everybody got the joke. Yeah, well, for one thing, it was widely misreported. Did I just misreport it? Uh, no, you did not, <laughs> precisely. Um, but uh, it was a speech I gave in Brisbane at the Literary Festival, um, and it was one of the earliest takedowns of the whole concept of cultural appropriation, especially as it applies to fiction. And I was just saying that fiction writers have to be allowed to wear many hats. And uh, what was misreported is that I wore this sombrero during a 45 minute speech and I felt that that, that insulted my sense of drama um, because in fact I wore it for the last two words of the speech <laughs> um, because it was a little flourish. Yeah. Um, Precision matters, doesn't it? It does, it does. So um, f presumably this was some kind of an outrage which I, I just thought it was hilarious. In fact, there was um, the, one of the articles that came out of it, uh, somebody who interviewed me, I think it was the New Republic, and the headline was, Lionel Shriver thinks a sombrero is just a hat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always intended to print that out and tape it somewhere because it's such an accurate approximation of my real opinion. <laughs> um. My, I, got, I had a conversation a couple of hours ago with, my, with one of my daughters who I'm delighted is increasingly inclining towards taking English literature at university, an increasingly unpopular subject, by the way. And 
And I worry a little bit that um, people of her generation, uh, another middle-aged man thinking the world's going to hell in a handcart, but I do worry her generation's forgotten how to read novels. Mm. And, um, and I love novels, and I came from a working-class background, and they were a, a, a route to, um, uh, to social mobility. They were a bridge to a better life, mm. a, richer mind of the li- a, a richer life of the mind. And that, that ability to put yourself in other people's shoes, that manual, that roadmap to the human condition, I, I think the world is a poorer place for people reading fewer novels. Obviously, you're going to agree with that. The question, the bigger question is what to do about it. Um, no, I can at least say that uh, the, we have not abandoned the form in a way. The way most people absorb novels is now through the television series, right? And television has become sufficiently advanced that the experience is akin. I'm not going to say it's the same, partly because uh, there's a language element that you're not going to get, aside from a rather crude voiceover or something, but... But still, it's it's the same big picture thing. If we're not going to be hoity-toity about it, you are entering into the lives of others. You are following a, lo- a narrative that that is made up, and uh, and invited into another world. It's got it's it's the same general idea. So I don't I don't think that we have abandoned uh, extending ourselves to other people's lives and other people's you know, countries. And as long as it's persuasively done and involving, then it's remarkable how far afield you can entice people to go. It shrinks the vocabulary, though, doesn't it, I think. And, and that matters if you believe, as I do, uh, if you agree with the Orwell view that says if you reduce, you know, the, the new speak idea at the back of 1984, if you reduce people's ability to precisely define a thing, then you deny them the origin of the thought in the first instance. Mm. And that, that worries me. That worries me a lot. Yeah, I think that less reading um, of, of richer, more literary text does reduce people's vocabulary. And I mean, I, I often have readers say, well, you know, I, I find your novels uh, help teach me new words. And I, I don't know what they're talking about because for the mo- there are some writers who deliberately seek to use uh, arcane, abstruse words, mm. like arcane and abstruse. <laughs> um, but that's, that's a good example. I mean, yeah. those are ordinary words. Th- those are regular words. But they're words. very precisely define what you're trying to say in one word each. Right. So I think that the vocabulary that I use in my work is, uh, should, should be mainstream. It's what I grew up hearing at home. Yeah. And th- there's a there's a kind of layer of, of slightly lesser used words that now are just not used. And I think that's a loss. Because it's very satisfying both to read and to write uh, language where the words are chosen carefully enough that it says exactly what you mean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's a perfection to it. Mm-hmm. I totally get it. Um, let's talk about demography. Uh, you recently reviewed a book, I think it was called Youthquake. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and the Spectator gave it gave your review a good spread, and I thought that said something. Actually, they seem to recognise that this was a really important topic, even if not. Actually, I I was given the it. usual. I did something that I never do because it's it, it's it's unprofessional, right? If I'm given eight hundred words for a review, I give you eight hundred words. I didn't this time. How I, many? I I delivered fourteen hundred words. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't control myself. And nor could they bring themselves to cut it. Um, I implored Sam Leith, and he complied. Okay. I mean, I, I was very grateful. <laughs> uh, he gave me the space. I said, you know, I'll cut it if you want me to, but I just couldn't say what I needed to. Okay. And, what, uh, and to, to Pracy, what you were saying, here was a book about African demography in particular, sub-Saharan demography especially, how it's defying the normal rules of the, that go with women's education bringing down birth rates. And at, the, at the present time, so it's sort of defying. more rules on a whole host of levels. And uh, the, but the upshot of this being that we end up with a world that is Africanizing really quickly uh, and on a scale that actually people don't don't get. And we're not, not saying whether they should be exercising people. We're just saying at least think about it because it's going to be utterly transformative. Yeah, well, we're looking at at least 4 billion Africans by the end of this century. And uh, that won't be quite half the population of the world, but it's getting there. And once the population reaches uh, 4 billion, it will also continue to grow from there. Um, so because we, it just, we, we it's demographic momentum. momentum. To some degree, it's baked in. Just one of the things that's interesting about the field no, I agree. People think de de demographics is it's just like another dismal science like economics. It's not actually. Things like demographic momentum. Yes. Once you've got so it's many people, thing. you will... It just you, has to do with population. numbers. I mean, unless you have a plague that just wipes everyone out and nobody has any... You know, you have to go almost sci-fi sci for some of this stuff not to happen. But what was interesting about that book is that the author... And I, I should clarify, uh, it's a well-written book. And it's a fascinating book. It's full of terrific information. So it's a good book. It's called Youthquake. Yes. It's a good book. But it has one shortcoming, which I found politically interesting. Why would someone in Europe want to buy that book if they weren't, say, especially interested in African studies? Go on, answer your question. Immigration. He doesn't touch it, doesn't touch it. That's how incendiary it is. Wow. I cannot imagine writing an entire book, and it's this thick, an entire book about African demography this century and not talking about immigration. It's just, it, w it was positively comical. Yeah. So that's why it was a 1,400-word review. <laughs> William Haig, former foreign secretary, wrote in the Times three years ago, wake up, wake up to African demography. I mean, yeah, he had the bravery, the intellectual courage to say, this is enormous. It's going to change on current trends, on current trends, it will change Britain, Europe, uh, utterly. Completely. Uh, and as I say, you, I'm not arriving at a, a judgment on that. I'm just simply saying oh, it's, no. a I mean, it's a conversation you, nobody's you can, having. You, this is just a neutral, factual point. And, and if you look at other drivers, uh, it's a continent that is uh, arid by nature. So leave aside ch climate change. You don't need climate change. It's already a crap climate, right? They don't have enough water. Um, 
And that has implications for, for agriculture, obviously, and, and for uh, herders. Uh, crap governance, you know, notorious uh, governance. So, you know, you can understand why people would want to leave. And I think a lot of us, if we woke up, you know, that's where we were, we'd want to, we'd want to get out. Uh, it's, it's a hard life. And the economies are, cannot keep up with the demographic growth. Uh, and what do you say Neither to those? Neither can, can, can the education system. Yeah. What do you say, what do you say to those people who inevitably, uh, they will say to, to the idea it's a hard life. They will say, well, that's partly your, your fault. West, you know, white Europeans, colonialism, empire, slavery. That's partly your fault. You've done this to Africa. Uh, therefore, you, you know, you broke it, you own it. Um, no, I don't buy that version of events. Um, I've spent some time in Africa. That doesn't make me any kind of expert. Uh, but uh, the, God, how do I say this without getting myself into trouble? Um, African societies uh, were not very developed when colonialism came along. Uh, I think you could certainly make a case that as much damage as colonialism did, it also helped. You know, if, if not uh, uh, an assist to development, which you can make, easily make that argument, if it, it, it would have been neutral. Um, which is not to defend slavery or anything like that. Although, you know, there was a great deal of participation by Africans with the slave trade. I mean, it's, a, it's an ugly story from start no, to finish. And, and, it's, and it's one I've heard on this podcast with David Starkey, uh, memorably amongst others. And, you know, I appreciate you even broaching the subject because you've got to you've got to pass your words really carefully haven't you because somebody takes them an eight second clip and you're a pariah and you're getting cancelled i mean i exaggerate slightly for effect but only slightly oh no it's not an exaggeration i've noticed that um once certain topics arise in an interview like this one i become less articulate <laughs> yeah it's a survival instinct yes it's, it means that the editorial function is in overdrive the spider sense is tingling. That's right. I say. Shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on. Let's <laughs> All move right. On. Let's move on to cancel culture. Uh, have people had enough of it? That's a very broad question. I mean, um, you know, this, this news channels, GB News has come along, others too, uh, to try and enlarge the scope of the national conversation. You put your finger, you know, it's, uh, see which way the wind is blowing, which way is the wind blowing? This is such a big movement that, you know, Every time we reach a juncture where it seems as if, you know, we've reached peak woke and we're on the other side, something else, some other issue or some new iteration comes along. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of years from now we're not calling it cancel culture anymore, but we'll probably call it something else because it, it will still be with us. This sensibility goes further back than I realized at first. You know, it has its roots ultimately in the 60s, um, really started institutionalizing itself in the 90s. 
Um, and that means it, 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 its tentacles go, go very deep. And we have given over uh, countless national institutions to this way of thinking. And um, it's, I'm not quite sure how to defeat it. Uh, I do my damnedest. I have plenty of company in that department. I have uh, noted on more than one occasion that there's money in anti-woke, which I wish publishing would start noticing. Yeah. You know, there's the, the, these are the people who can sell books, whereas the, the progressive audience is saturated yeah. with all their incredible goodness. Interesting. I'm going to a spiked, spiked, and now becoming a publisher. Is book, that so? Book publisher. There you go. You heard it here. Maybe, uh, and, and I think that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. And they're just about to go into it. And I'm going to a launch in a couple of weeks. So it's happening. Great. You know. Well, um, the irony is that this is when you talk about the anti-woke perspective. That's just basically ordinary people's perspective. It's yeah. most people's perspective. See, there's a, there's a bit in with it. I know why you root it in the 1960s, but actually, I mean, censoriousness is a human universal. It's been there since sure. people started living together, isn't it? You know, the, the desire of one person to, to The desire to control uh, the autocratic impulse has simply moved from right to left. Um, can we talk a little bit about Sally Rooney, who you, um, whose book, she stopped, she stopped her book being published in, in Israel, even though it was sold in... China. Mm -hmm. I mean, your, your, your scribe's tribe is, is part of the problem here, isn't it? Or at least publishing is. Um, I don't understand why so many uh, literary writers are all part of the same political tribe. I, I, I don't think that the urge to write novels uh, it, 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 that it would naturally arise in people who go along with everyone else and think the same way everyone else does and are very fearful and parrot what they see. Uh, it seems to me that that's antithetical to the project, that one of the things that draws you to wanting to write is to distinguish yourself from the herd to imagine that you have something you need, need to contribute. Um, to think differently. To think differently, to carve out your own, your own world where you're in complete control. Uh, I, so Because you give, you're giving up a lot, right? You're yeah. giving up society, being gregarious, you're, cooked up in your, you're cooped up in your garret. The payoff has to be that you get to create your own world. Yeah, well, I mean, that just it's just... It's not for everyone. No. It's it, it can be quite lonely. I don't experience it that way, but I think that for a lot of people it would be. It's it's not everyone's cup of tea. That that's fine. Uh, it's a it's a kind of safe adventure because you're actually just sitting there. <laughs> um, it's bad for your health, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it it should appeal to the the maverick and. I, I just don't see very many mavericks. Uh, politically, all of my colleagues 
are almost identical. And I find that bizarre. It's bizarre. I totally agree. It's completely bizarre. And I, I, I hope, uh, and occasionally I see uh, straws in the wind, that actually you are going to get the, a, a turnaround. Maybe if you look at the French presidential election, the number of young people, young people who were rejecting the new establishment and saying, actually, we're going to go with her. I thought, yeah, maybe I, thought I was fascinated with that. And, you know, I'm not a big supporter of Le Pen, but I had a mischievous side because I, I, I found when I was listening to those young people on the news who were supporting Le Pen, I thought, well, in a weird way, good for you. I mean, just it, it was partly the whole Brexit impulse, mm. right? Just not doing what you're supposed to do. And I, I like the mischievous impulse. Well, that's what, to be young is to be transgressive, yes. right? That was yes. the, the idea. They were being bad. And, yeah. you know, some of the people interviewed that, that I saw uh, were black or Muslim. Yeah. And I thought, God, that's kind of hip. <laughs> I, I've, I've had a pop at your tribe. Let me have a pop at my tribe. I, I, I was musing on this only this week uh, on the telly and saying how odd it was, how um, reactionary it was for, for journalism to to, to prefix every reference to Le Pen with the words far right. Yep. And I'm uncomfortable with elements of Le Pen too. Sure. But you don't win 41% of a national election and remain on the fringes. That's by definition impossible. And yet we still had the BBC and Sky and others reflexively far right candidate, far right. Also, uh, um, there's an asymmetry because far right is used in an exclusively pejorative sense, far left is not. Yeah. You don't get far left as a construction nearly as often, and left wing is usually used as a compliment. You know, it's a... It's a I agree. And, uh, notice it with think tanks very yeah. often. It's often right wing think tanks, but it's very rarely left wing think tanks. Yeah, uh, they're just think tanks. Uh, final thought, I want to take you back to 9-11. Um, and 9 uh, certainly changed my life. I wasn't, in, I wasn't in America, certainly even less New York as you were. It changed a lot of lives. Um, but it, 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 I, it, I, I was sent to Pakistan did all, and did sort of five years of the wars. And it was a, on a, quite a profound level changed the direction of my professional life, but made me think about things in a whole new way. And I think for me, it was the beginning of the culture wars. I think for a lot of people, it was the beginning of a period of looking at the world in a different way, in a way they hadn't hitherto really looked at it. Um, as somebody who was there in New York, take us take us through not necessarily what it was like on the day, but whether that still is the historic punctuation mark uh, in your life, uh, w w in the in the context of public affairs and international affairs and the culture wars, if I can keep using that phrase. I think as a turning point, it's a little less crisp than it was when it was nearer by. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was so moving about it for me was a sense of unity in the country, because I was in New York at the time, that was incredibly refreshing. And I, it, it, I've had a similar sense in relation to the war in Ukraine. And I, I, it's not quite as deep um, but one of the th things that I have, one of the only good things I can pull out of the Ukraine situation is 
that in relation to this issue, to this war, I am not sensing a fierce polarization. The divide that you and I have been talking about more or less this entire time almost dissolves. And it's, it's in journalism also, mm. this sense of unity and also a renewed sense of purpose and professionalism. I'm seeing journalism of a quality I haven't seen in, in years and years. Um, where reporters are putting themselves on the line, what really matters is the facts. Um, they're involved in the story, but not not in a corrupt way. Uh, but the, and there's just a feeling of th this is this is really important, and we're and it 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 involves us all to some degree. Hmm. And that's a big relief. I mean, I, I get a, um, I'm sure I get a cheap thrill, of, you know, a little crack high out of the, the, the conflicts that arise from the culture wars. Mm -hmm. I'm a participant up to the neck. And I don't say that proudly. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I'm making everything better. But you could do no other. I, I can't do anything else. Um, but it, be, because... The uh, my side, the anti woke side, the culture war needs every help, every bit of help that it can get. So fine, I I get something out of it. Um, it's f it's fun to have a scrap. It's fun to know who your enemies are. I, I, again, don't say that proudly. It's it's it doesn't bring out the finest in us this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I'm relieved that I'm relieved, if you will. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm relieved that, oh, I, finally, at least for now, and it may change, but at least for now in the West, there's a feeling of we all understand for once what is good and what is bad. Yeah. Right, it's as, it's as primitive as that. We we have a shared sense of values. We talk a lot in this country about you know shared British values, but what are those? You know, do you really experience them on a primitive level very often? And for once, you know, yeah, I feel I feel well, we look at this and this this is deeply wrong. This is deeply wrong. This is very upsetting. And that's leaving aside, you know, whether or not we should have expanded NATO and all that. I don't care. Never mind how we got here. We can differ on that a little bit, but we shouldn't be here. This should not be happening. And I just, I, I find that a huge relief. I am really grateful to have a sense of community for once. It's mm -hmm. one of the most mm -hmm. abused words on earth. And it, I, you know, I, I, I'm sort of relieved by that, and I share your relief. And you know, you, you don't strike me as the kind of person who would sort of intellectually cross the road for a fight. There are mm. those who who would, and they're hooked on the the crack hit. Uh, and and it's and I, you know, it's important to know when not to be, yeah, to, when to resist that reflexive impulse just to scrap for the sake of having a scrap, and whether that's saying actually, you know, I'm I'm going to have the jabs, or whether that's saying actually this is a just war, just just. Just on one, on one point you say about the, about the journalism, and it's a, fi a final thought from me. 
for, we've just had, what, the 40th anniversary of the invasion of the Falkland Wars. At the time, the BBC um, was accused of being unnecessarily um, punctilious about uh, the Argentine forces and British forces. They wouldn't say our troops. Mm. And they were criticised for that. And I think I would have been one of those, that, if, if I wasn't 13, who would have criticised them. Mm. Uh, but no, just occasionally I sort of hanker for that that utter dispassionateness. For the same reason I look occasionally at Lindsay Hoyle, I saw him yesterday at the Speaker of the House Commons, and think, I think, I think you're a good, decent man, but there's just a whiff of the popping jay there with the Ukraine tie and the Ukraine. I know why he's doing it, but maybe sometimes I just want some other institutions, BBC speaker, to be emotionless and dispassionate and let the rest of us, you know, form our, form our view and form our side. Well, news has fashions. Doesn't it? Mm, it does. And uh, we, I don't think you'd necessarily do anything about the fact that we now have a more emotive style of news delivery. And I, I'm with you. You know, I, I would love to be able to turn on the television and, and get, boring. get a dry, as you said, dispassionate rendition of what is happening. And I can, I can get excited about it or I can get depressed about it, but that's up to me. Yeah. Uh, but that is that is old fashioned now, and it is we now expect newscasters to be very expressive. Um, I mean, just as an aside, it, um, it it was almost a rule during the pandemic uh, that every time a newscaster mentioned the death toll. Sadly, <laughs> sadly, 804 people have died. Sadly, sadly. It was just like, oh, shut up with the sadly. But th- that's, th- that's the way it is now. That's the, fa- th- that's the fashion. Yeah. You cannot just deliver to camera that a set number of people have died in the last mm. week and move I, rapidly I, on. I, I promise that was the last thing I would say about my tribe, but I find I have to say this. One of the reasons I left Sky News after 24 years was that I was asked by a producer to go to the, the big screen and just as they took the pictures of Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson banging pots outside their homes, I would join and clap live. Mm. And I said, but look, I didn't, I didn't clap for the last lot of heroes mm. who came back in coffins from, uh, through Bryce Norton. So I'm not going to do it this time because I need to be, have retained my third party detachment mm-hmm. because actually when the sort of the screw of fate, of news fate turns half a screw, um, and suddenly some of those NHS doctors and nurses are not quite the heroes we thought they were, how can I possibly be a reasonable, impartial, honest broker in assessing their performance? So I'm not going to clap, actually. But that's the way yeah. it's moving. Well, it won't surprise you that um, I was not out there denting my cookware. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with doing that, but just don't feel no, compelled to do no, it. No, but don't make me do it. Lionel Shriver, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in. Enjoy talking to you.